Well, today I issue a wind advisory warning in the church and in all area lakes. And boy, what a day to have the wind advisory considering the wind is blowing 30 miles an hour. God gave us a great object lesson today. When I speak of a wind advisory, why do we speak of this? The Bible gives us great warning that the winds of doctrine blow to blow us off course, to lead people shipwrecked, to capsize. You think about the effects of wind. If you've ever been in a spot where you've been on water when the big wind comes, and it can be terrifying. You end up in places you never thought you would be. You may be even terrified by the aspect of whether you're going to make it or not. But this wasn't what I had set out and what I had planned. I've been in that spot on more than one occasion. On one occasion because I didn't take heed to the warning and thought I was smarter than the warning. And I wasn't. And it, it was almost uh, the end of me. On another occasion, I just didn't know there was a warning. I had turned off the opportunities to hear. And so all of a sudden, I had been caught in the middle of something on water that was very, very dangerous. And once again, it wasn't good for me. So today I come today as your pastor to share a wind advisory. For the next several weeks, in fact, we are going to study under the umbrella of this title, Wind Advisory, because of the winds of doctrine that blow throughout church, coming in from the outside, from the culture that we live in, in the world, but also it blows from within and can be very destructive and blow us off our, our course with God. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he describes, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, where he describes why we need to be following after him or after the word of God and why God puts pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles in the church. Why did he do that? In setting things in order. And he did this for the sake of that the pastors and teachers would continue to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man or a complete man under the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's maturity. And here's why. And be the next verse that, that we would be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine and the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Here's the point. It's the winds of doctrine that blow that are trying to blow us off course. And Paul's describing that it's through the teaching of the Word of God and understanding the Word that keeps us anchored to know the anchor of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. However, we know from the very beginning of our Bible, clear back in Genesis 3, the very first interaction that Satan had with mankind was to question the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3. He is more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And what did he do? He posed a question. Did God say that? And what is happening in our culture today, nonstop, and it's been this way since the beginning, it's nothing new, everyone. And that is the fact that the enemy of God is always wanting to remove the Word of God from your hands so that you do not believe it is true. Just the fact that you possess a book is not enough. It's the fact that you believe what is written in this book. That is what matters. And he's always wanting to remove that by a lot of mechanisms. Some it's by just subtle false teachings that come along. 
Other times it's just an all-out assault so that maybe we don't believe that God's word is authoritative, that it's even accurate. And after all, it is written by sinful men. So how could we ever know for sure that we have what God truly said? And of good grief, it's been all of these years. So do you really believe that the Bible can transcend culture and time and it's not all corrupt in this day? And all these questions get posed. Has God really said because once you lay down the Bible, the Satan, I will tell you, Satan knows the power of the Word of God. He's well aware of its power. It is the power of God unto salvation. Paul said this in Romans chapter 1. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the Word of God that, that literally transforms our lives. When the Word of God comes in, it's quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing of sunder of the, of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It's even a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is a living book, and Satan knows that. And so it's constant battle against the word has been coming, and it's been this way for a long time. Satan's mechanisms are to veil our eyes so that we won't see. The lost of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said this. He said, our gospel's veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing, dying without Christ. Why does this happen? Whose minds this God, the God of this age, notice small g, has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on him. He, he's in the business of blinding. Satan's in this business of being a thief. Jesus called him out. He said, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and life more abundant. The thief, he's always trying to come. All throughout our Old Testament, we saw this with the false prophets. They come speaking on behalf of God. Thus saith the Lord, but you had to listen and watch careful because often they were false prophets who would even claim they were speaking on behalf of God, but were not. When, in the, when you get to the Gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus warned constantly of this religious crowd who claimed to have the corner of the market on God because of the fact they've kept all these laws, these ordinances, these traditions, and they've not, not only kept what Moses said, but they've elevated it to a new level, and Jesus warned against this. This was false teaching. When you watch throughout all of Paul's letters, nearly every letter he wrote to the churches and to pastors He's warning against false teachers. This happened in the early church. It's continuing to happen today. And the winds of doctrine, they blow. And Paul issues a wind advisory. In the book of Colossians, this, there's a, a struggle in this church of Colossae on many different levels. Many of which we can completely relate to today. There was a struggle in the church when it came to the philosophies of the day. You can just imagine Greek philosophy had come through and it was in its strength. We saw Paul ministering, remember, when he went to Athens, Greece, and then had an interaction with the philosophers of the day. So there's a struggle here with philosophy. There's a struggle when it came to uh, uh, secular humanism, self-sufficiency outside of God. There was a struggle when it came to the concepts of what is genuine prosperity. There was the, the aspects of, 
Judaism that was meshed into the church as well because it obviously you had many Jewish people have now come to Christ but they've got years of tradition of their faith that they're carrying into the church and now imposing that upon the Gentile crowd saying well if you're going to be a real follower of Christ you need to do these things but not only that there was this whole idea that if you're going to be a Christ follower it seemed is this total death that was not just death to self, but now it becomes this infliction that if I want to really experience the secret sanctum of spirituality is to inflict pain upon myself in some way, denying myself of everything this earth would ever offer, matter of fact, even inflicting hurt to me. That would make me closer to Jesus somehow. Paul addresses all of these matters in Colossians chapter 2, but to get to Colossians 2, you got to see the end of chapter 1 because it sets the context for everything we will study for these next few weeks. And here it is, Colossians 1.26, that the mystery he's going to reveal here, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here it is, which is Christ in you. This mystery, this truth that has been here all along, but it's been hidden and not understood. But now, he said, I'm going to unveil it so you can know what it is. And it's this incredible reality that Christ indwells us. Christ in you. That the, this creator of heaven and earth would indwell a human being? What are you talking about? That, and that's why we were called Christians in the early day. You mean your God is so small that he would fit inside of you? That what kind of God is that? My God's 12 feet tall and a painted statue. That's an amazing looking God. And your God's so little, he fits in you? But it's the incredible power, the spirit of the living God that indwells the heart of the believer. And it was the mystery, the hope of glory, and Paul said, in him we preach, we warn every man, teaching every man of all, in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. It's a warning. It's a warning of the judgment to come, of course, but there's a warning here of misunderstanding this aspect of Christ in you because we're going to see why now. Here comes the big wind advisory. Advisory number one, beware of persuasive words. Well, I thought Paul went about persuading people to follow after Jesus Christ. Well, watch what he's teaching here in Colossians 2, 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. This deceiving is obviously trickery or beguile. The persuasion is to lure with bait. I love to fish, and I've learned something through the years of fishing. If the fish aren't hungry, they're not biting. You can throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at them, and they're not going to touch it. They're not hungry. Why does that matter? Because Paul's using that kind of terminology here. Because when our soul has an appetite for something, persuasive words seem to lure us away. Well, what's the appetite? Maybe you're in a moment of life where you're having a loneliness or you're feeling fear or there's an issue of financial security, or relational conflicts, or you can be an exasperated mom just trying to figure out how to do mom. You can have health problems, spiritual problems, and here's what happens. Our culture is slam full of the influencers who speak loud. Matter of fact, there's people who are paid to be influencers. 
That's all they do, to have a persuasive voice, to create a following so that we, at the end of the day, you listen to their voice and they become the voice of wisdom. They become the voice of knowledge. They become the one who influences your pathway. And after all, what, we end up hap- what ends up happening, we substitute out the truth of God's word for another podcast, for another lecture from someone else. We got to read somebody else's blog because they got life figured out instead of trusting the living God for the fact that God's got life figured out. And in fact, as a Christ follower, the fullness of God dwells in you. So you're not like having to go out and get God more and more like jet fuel, like he's going to just keep dispensing himself. No, he's a person. The spirit of the living God is a person. And the day you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the person of God indwelled you. And so what happens in our Christian life is we learn to trust the living God who now lives inside of me and the power of God. It's why uh, the Apostle Paul um, prayed over the church in Ephesus. In his prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, his prayer was this, that they would understand the power of the resurrection and that that same power indwells them and same for us here's what happens this persuasive words begins to teach and addresses a problem in our life whatever the problem is and so here's how it gets packaged if you'll just do these things then you will experience the fullness of god Take these six steps, the seven ways to do whatever, the 10 of this, the 12 of that. And there's all of these steps that I, if I follow the plan, wow, now I get to experience the completeness and the fullness of God. Hey, if you're a Christ follower, the fullness of God is in you. And that is what Paul is talking about here, this incredible mystery, as he's already said that. This mystery lets you know this fullness you already have. But we're always looking for it somewhere else. Beware of persuasive words. And here's how he brings then the truth to this matter. In chapter 2, verse 2, he explains it. He said that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining, listen, to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But the world tells me, and sometimes even false Christian um, teachers will say this, that you find this fullness somewhere else, or by doing these things, you will then discover these things. But that is exactly opposite of what the Bible says. The prosperity gospel, which I I do not adhere to, will often teach this type of message. It sounds really attractive in North America. Doesn't fly so great anywhere else on the planet. But you take the prosperity kind of concept gospel that it's basically the sales concept for Jesus. The Jesus package brings to you its faith, hope, peace, love. Okay, I get that. But also with it, it brings back my health. It brings me financial security. It brings all these things. Sounds cool in North America. 
Try selling that idea to someone who's meeting underground in another place under a single light bulb who's every week having to find a different pathway just to come and fellowship together with people and people in their church this last week lost their life because they are Christ followers. And yet, we teach the concept that, well, if you'll do these things, you'll get to experience all the financial prosperity that God's intended for you. Paul's describing this prosperity, the fullness of God is God himself. To know God, that's the ultimate knowledge is to know God. That's why Paul made this statement of a guy who is as a missionary traveling from place to place and everywhere he went, things went bad. Why would he keep doing this? Because he said, I just want to know Christ. I want to know him and fellowship with him in his sufferings. It's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. But we flip the, we flip the script. Well, I want to seek all these things and then I get the fullness of God. But that is the opposite of what the text teaches. Paul gives warning number two. And by the way, today I'm introducing the concept through this chapter in the next several weeks. We will unpack these things in more detail because it impacts every part of your life. For perspective, next Sunday we're going to have a family dedication. So you can bet one of the things that the Bible speaks very clearly about is the concept of family. What's being assaulted with both barrels today in our culture? In the church and outside, all of it, man, it's coming in every direction is the assault on the family. Beware, number two, of worldly philosophical ideas. Chapter 2, verse 8 of Colossians, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So we have a contrast. Well, let's examine the words. This cheating me. Don't let them cheat you. It's despoiled or be carried away or held captive. And we even use the word kidnap would be an equivalent. Through what? How is, it, how, how is this happening? Through philosophy. Now listen, philosophy in and of itself is not sin. Philosophy, the word, it's, a, it's actually two words that make one. But philosophy is love of wisdom. You put it all together. That's philosophy. So in and of itself, that's not wrong, but where's the philosophy coming from? Matter of fact, Paul even describes like a Christian philosophy that is now handed down or and passed down through the, through the fathers and through the family of faith. There's a philosophy that I would subscribe to when it comes to my own life, and many of you do as well, that I order my life or do my best to to order it by a book. That's my philosophy of life. But others may order by uh, something other than God's word, and that's their philosophy. There's a philosophical questions that are always being asked, and how you answer these determines your, your philosophy connected to either rooted in Scripture or world philosophy. The questions of, well, how did we get here? What's the meaning to life? The order of the universe. Defining the meaning of success. 
And the list could go on and on. These are philosophical subjects that people can discuss all day long. The philosophy of how you train and raise your family. There's all, I mean, we could do this all day long. And so either all of this is rooted and grounded firmly in Scripture. Or we might use some Scripture and then adopt in other things because it sounds and feels right. And what did Paul describe with that? He said it hooks in according to traditions of men and according to the principles or rudiments of the world. Well, in Paul's day, what's the struggle? Well, you had the Greek philosophy that is coming in like crazy. And so the philosophers of that day had an idea of the order of the universe and all of the small gods, the plurality of gods. And so many things were connected then to those gods and knowing that there is a supreme one out there somewhere, but he is not knowable. Similar to the way that you might think in the Muslim or the Islamic faith, that there is an Allah God, above all, supreme God, but he's not knowable. Well, I can tell you, you can know the living God and have a personal living relationship with the creator of the universe. The scripture teaches that plainly. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am one with the Father. Our relationship with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And we have a personal living relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. He is knowable. But that's a philosophy. It's to know wisdom because that's the wisdom of what scripture teaches. In Paul's day, there was a lot of connection between this, the ordering of the planetary system and all these, all these gods. They also then created calendar events that by following sun, moon, stars, and these calendaring issues becomes then the traditions that must be followed and a lack of adherence to those things. Well, now you're out of compliance. And all this is getting brought into the church. And somebody's looking at it saying, well, that's not my tradition. I didn't grow up with that. Yeah, but if you want to be spiritual, you've got to follow that. Well, whoa, is that right? And Paul's looking at this thing at the church at Colossae and saying, well, wait, what's happened here is you're missing the fullness of God. The fact that Christ is in you, and here's what he comes with and explains it in chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Listen, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you know what he just told us? And in you dwells him and he's and you're complete you know where we struggle sometimes we feel incomplete like i'm missing something there was a christian author that years ago put some information out and the sound of it sounded interesting and was i, I heard it repeated and here's the phrase it was, a, it was a marriage book that described that when you get married, that marital relationship completes you. I, I think the intent was two are better than one, taken out of Genesis. I, I get that two become one. But there's some destructive behavior to that. Because if my mate completes me, 
What happens when my mate isn't here anymore? Am I now incomplete? I watched this literally play out in the life of someone who did lose their mate. And that is exactly the struggle for the rest of their days on this planet was feeling incomplete. When the scripture teaches us, we are complete in him. Married, unmarried, if you're married and your spouse passes away, your situation in your marriage changes, your completeness is not the marriage. Your completeness is in Christ Jesus. But this was a very common book. Christianity, I mean, we, we absorbed it. But listen to the carefulness of the nuance of that and then how potentially destructive that can be because now I guess I'm incomplete. Well, how can I ever be complete again? What if God never puts another person in my life to marry again? Do I just spend the rest of my days incomplete? Paul gives another wind advisory warning. Beware of legalism. In chapter 2, verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. In his day, the Judaism came into the church, the judging of what you eat and drink and whether you do or you don't, the festivals that are connected to all of the religious days, the new moons, of course, the calendaring and when we're going to keep all these things. Oh, this was a big deal. Got to keep it all. Well, these become religious duties. And Jesus didn't come to establish a religion. He came to give himself in relationship with you and I. But this religion turns into a legalism. And what is that? It means, from my, my observation of the Bible is, obedience is the outpouring of faith, meaning Christ in you. So catch that. When you obey, you're obeying based on the faith that you have in what the Scripture is teaching you to do. So by faith, I follow that. Legalism is the opposite. Legalism says my relationship is the outcome of my obedience. So I'm going to do these things in order to have relationship. Look at how much of a struggle that creates. Because when I don't, when I don't seem to keep up checking all the boxes, then it seems like my relationship's no good. What fuels that? Sometimes ungodly parenting is fueling it. Because as a child, maybe you grew up in an environment where when you kept all the boxes, there was an extension of love and grace and, and you felt that love in your family. But when you weren't keeping all the rules just perfect, you knew that, man, the relationships here changed. So it gets embedded into you that my relationship is completely dependent on my obedience. So obey, 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 obey. Then I get the fruit of a relationship Whereas Christianity teaches, you know what, this obedience comes out of my relationship because of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ in me doing his perfect work in me. This sowed into the church, measuring spirituality based on activity. Always it was Christ plus something. I don't know all of your background, but many have felt this pressure to perform some kind of spiritual thing in order to appease the people around you because that would then measure whether you were really a Christ follower or not. 
I remember when I went off to college, I went to a Christian school, and I had a New Testament professor that made a statement that it, it startled me. I wasn't really savvy in my Bible. Quite frankly, I would say I was Bible illiterate. I knew stories like a child, but I didn't know the Lord well. I didn't know his word. I was an easy target. And I remember this professor made a statement. He said, now, the manifestation of your salvation is when you speak in the unknown tongue. I wasn't even sure what that meant. I never heard of such a thing. And my class went into kind of this huge tumult and there was all kinds of arguing that took place in that room. I wasn't, I wasn't intellectual enough to even know what they're arguing about. But I was listening to this thing and I was like, okay, now wait a minute. So that I studied some before the next class so I could get my, at least a handle on a little bit. Come back to the next class and there were some really great questions being posed. And one, would, one student would say, well, I don't understand how this works, and this has never happened to me, though I come here believing I'm a Christ follower, and I've never done that. So how would you then tell me, then, how can I experience what you're telling me? Guys, this was in 1986. I was sitting in a classroom, and this is what I was told. Get yourself into the attitude of prayer and begin to say, these words, tie a tie and tie a tie, tie a tie and tie a tie until the Spirit of God takes over your tongue and then you can speak in this unknown tongue. What? And I, I have time out here. So I went and asked, is there anywhere in the Bible that says that? I don't know what to do with this. But this was instructed that this is how you can manifest and know. I'm not here today to speak on tongues. I'm just here today to talk about the fact that this is something that I'm being sewn in through a Christian university that is teaching me something that the Bible doesn't actually say. Now, what do I do with that? Well, then I begin to wonder, am I incomplete? Have I missed something here? I thought all these years I was saved. Now I don't know if I am or not. And all of a sudden you start feeling like you're operating on your heels and there's pressure to perform and, well, it's not ever happening to me, so I guess I'm an inadequate Christian. If I can't measure up, I might as well cash it in now. I'm done. But here is the truth in Colossians 2.13. He says, and He has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And here was the truth. Jesus took all of this legalism and all these rules and regs and all this stuff, nailed that thing to the cross. So our access to Christ by grace and you know what happens with this is he then forgives all trespasses when we come by faith in him. And it takes all this checkbox business, it takes it out. Wind advisory number four, beware of losing your reward. Colossians 3.18, let no one cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which, has not seen, which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind 
and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. This is not talking about losing your salvation. This is talking about losing reward. Colossians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks of this distinctly, of not losing your salvation. It says this, that if anyone's work which he has built on and endures, he receives a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, all the things you do in life, it, at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to teach that one of these next days, but when your work is all burned up, you may suffer loss because all the work of your life is it for eternal things or for temporal things. But listen what it says. The work is burned, he may suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. It's not talking about your salvation, we're talking about reward. Well, what's the ambition to cheat you of your reward? And where, would he, where was this going? With false humility. Putting on this false humility. Well, we know as Christ followers, we're to be humble. What brings, apart, uh, brings about humility? When I see myself in the presence of the living God, it brings a humility. I don't attain unto Him. But here's where the false humility comes. Well, I, you know, I'm just not good enough to go to God. I, man, I, well, all the things I do on a daily basis, the way I think and everything else, I, I'm just not good enough to come and pray. I, I hear what you're saying about that bold access of coming to the throne of grace to the living God. But man, I, I just don't think that's me. So I, I just pray to the angels and have them deliver the message. Or I pray to the saints and have them deliver the message instead. A total disregard for the fact there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It sounds humble. It's just not biblical. It takes a, a spiritual experience apart from God's word and apart from the Holy Spirit, but claiming either one of those are real. It's the satanic counterfeits that oh, this is so complicated because it says in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan himself will adorn himself to be an angel of light. It's where it makes it difficult to see. Was that of God? or What was that? We don't always know. We can't see clear because Satan is very crafty. This packages itself into self-denial. That's the self-humility appearing as a discipline but somehow believing this discipline makes me closer to God. This can come in from everything, guys, to self-destructive behaviors. Because somehow if I deny myself of enough things, then that makes me closer. I observed this when we lived in Asia where the monks would do this. And they, they abstain seemingly from everything that this world has to offer. Because anything that would appeal to the flesh has got to be bad and put away. Because the farther I can get away from anything that feels good makes me closer to God which includes sometimes inflicting pain upon yourself. There will be nothing, I think, in your, that would ever break your heart more than to watch people crawl on their hands and knees literally for miles to come to this big image of a cross that somehow by bleeding enough, it would earn enough favor with God that He would then extend His grace and extend favor and do something and through this self-denial, surely that would be enough. That's false. We come to God just as we are. 
and he receives us as we are. We live in a day of self-mutilation, rejecting the very imagery of God. This text teaches about intruding into things not seen yet, vainly puffed up. What is this? It's setting foot into this inner shrine that somehow I've got the corner on God that I, I know things that you don't know. Or I want to go dabble in this because there's obviously something that eludes me that I haven't found just yet. And it's this concept of constantly fishing for the one thing I haven't seemed to discover. I want to experience some spiritual thing that's, that's really amazing. It's what gives room, and this is what Paul was really describing in the Eastern mysticism and star worship and horoscopes and Ouija boards and all this stuff that dabbles in the spiritual realm. But boy, you're, you're going to find things there. You don't want that. That's a, a dark realm of the spiritual realm that you ask for it, and you're going to experience things you don't want. But what brings this about? Oh, it's this self-humility you know, I'm just not good enough to get to God and talk to him myself. I need another medium to make this happen. And that surely if I afflict myself enough, then God would, you know, dabble out more of his life to me. And it moves you away. All of these things, here's the danger, moves you away from the joints and ligaments. What? Yeah, Christ is the head and we are the body. The joints and the ligaments called the church. And so what does all this do? Paul's warning is, all this moves you away from the body of Christ. And so this is a plague of our nation today in, in North American Christianity. It moves away from the, the centrality of local church life where we learn together, we love together, we serve together, we help one another, and we build each other up and come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And we do this together the way God's designed and what's happening in our life today, we disband and everyone goes and finds their favorite podcast people and all their things. And that's how I want to study. I do better alone than I do with other people. And after all, people come drive me nuts. And so we all have our thing, right? It's a vain worldly philosophy counter to the scripture when it comes to the body of Christ. And here's the truth. And I end here. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The big wind's blowing. The winds of doctrine blows from the outside coming against the church, blows inside. Why? Because Satan knows something. He opposes God. Doesn't ever want, if you're not someone who's a Christian yet, he doesn't want you to become one. Because once you've become a Christ follower, he can never have you back. He knows this, that raise the big question mark over the Bible. Because once you set it down, listen to the power of Scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The quickest way to dismantle someone's faith, take their Bible away. And they believe the lie. My prayer today for us as a church 
We just take heed to the warnings, but there may be things happening every day in your world that I look, ask you to consider the influencers. I do it too. I analyze, okay, what am I reading? What am I listening to? Who, is, who has the ear to Dwayne? And how much does that impact me? How does it influence my thinking? How does it change my behaviors? How does it change my spending habits? How does it affect me? When do I feel insecure? What do I do about that? Do I run to fleshly things and worldly things and philosophical things? Or do I, do I go back to the Word? When it comes to spiritual influences, we all want to draw closer to God. But do we do that through the power of His Word or trying to find it in some other medium or mechanism that, oh, that will make me closer? And maybe today is the day where by faith you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know that you are the creator of heaven and earth and you gave your life for mine to set me free from all the bondage of sin and the corruption that is in this world. You've set me free. And that in Christ, you can know forgiveness of sin where you receive the full pardon from God. And not only that, but the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. How does that transaction happen? By faith. Trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus is who he says he is. He's the son of God. And that he died for you and he rose again. Claiming victory over death and hell and sin. The question you have to answer today, is he your savior? Do you trust him to save you? As a Christ follower today, are there things to put away? Are there things to draw close to when it comes to the scripture? Is there the aspect of drawing nigh to the body of Christ and drawing to Jesus through the body of Christ even? When the scripture's opened and Paul grants warning, it's to open our eyes that we might see Christ in you, the hope of glory.